Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, I'm CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I'd like to welcome you to another, and you see, this is a special, um, and wonderful edition of our Writers Live series. And tonight, we are very honored to have a very special guest, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, remarkable journalist, and a historian who knows quite a bit about American politics. And I must say that the timing, as you probably will agree, couldn't be more perfect to have him here less than a week before those midterm elections. So please welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, Mr. Gary Wills. Now for tonight, we, uh, because our guest is um, someone that is very special to a number of people here in Baltimore as well, we were very fortunate to have a person to introduce him that has been his friend for a number of years. He is the president of J.J. Clark Enterprises, and during the Carter administration, he served as a deputy assistant secretary for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and also was the former deputy director for the Greater Baltimore Committee and associate director for the United Way. And if that wasn't keeping him busy enough during all that time, he still is an adjunct professor at the Johns Hopkins University Carey School of Business, teaching graduate students in the master's in real estate programs. So please welcome Mr. Joseph Clark. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. Back in the 1960s, which was not that long ago, the Wills family moved to Baltimore because Gary was working at Johns Hopkins. I wasn't working at Johns Hopkins then, but we lived next door to Johns Hopkins then. And um, we wound up meeting uh, the Wills family because they were like we are. Uh, and as is stated in this book, we are incurable Catholics. Um, so we wound up going to Mass uh, at the Hopkins, where the chaplain became a very good friend of ours and part of the family, basically. And so the Wills family and uh, us and Dick Maxey and his family, a Dick's a professor at Hopkins, uh, spent a lot of Sundays together. In fact, when Gary moved from one house to another, it might have occurred to you he has a rather large book collection. Uh, fortunately, we didn't have to put them in the boxes. They were already in the boxes when we got there, but we did help move the rather large collection, and it took a few many trips with a lot of cars. Anyway, we were close. John Wills, <clears throat> Gary's oldest son, served as a volunteer with Mary Patton, her very first city council campaign, and he was extremely diligent about it. He was a teenager. He was up on the street every day with Mary Patton ringing doorbells, and uh, John's pursued an interesting life in politics. Gary is very much a Baltimorean, even though when he speaks, you'll know that he's actually a Midwesterner. Uh, but he liked it here. His children, for a while, had actual Baltimore accents. It took a little work to get rid of them. <clears throat> he lives in Evanston, Illinois now with his marvelous wife, Natalie. And um, I hope you'll listen and carefully enjoy it. And please get a copy of this. There's an awful lot of Baltimore 
in this book. Artie Donovan, everybody said it. Thanks for being here, Gary. Well, it's great to be back here. I spent 18 wonderful years in Baltimore. My children all grew up here, and I met a number of interesting people. This book presents a problem to me. Normally when I go out to, on a book tour for signings or whatever, readings, I have a main thesis of my book, and all I have to do is present that at the beginning and then take questions. This book is about a lot of interesting people I have met. And I realize that many of them were dead or dying. And I'm 76 years old, and I figure, my God, (laughs) these people, my memories of them are not going to be around for much longer. My father, I'm the last living relative. If I don't tell his story, nobody will know it. And just recently... A number of my friends, Beverly Sill, Studs Terkel, Bill Buckley, uh, have died. And so I thought uh, I would write a book about the people who were fascinating to me and uh, be a kind of collection of stories that I have accumulated over the years. But it's difficult then for me to know where do I start? Which person do I talk about? Now, I don't know if you want me to talk about Baltimore people uh, or others. Uh, I suppose the easiest thing is just choose one at random and see what uh, comes from that. And you can ask questions about the other ones, whether Studs Terkel or Bill Buckley or Beverly Sills or others. Uh, And I thought I would begin with James Bevel because he gave the greatest speech I've ever heard in my life, and he turned out to be an utter scoundrel. Uh, So, when Dr. King was killed, I was in the bathtub reading, and Natalie came running in and said, they've killed Dr. King. So I got up and said, call the airline, and I threw on clothes and threw clothes into a bag and got to the airport and got onto the last seat, going to Memphis, and on the plane was uh, Bill Coffin, the Yale chaplain whom I knew, and I said, uh, he was a great preacher, I said, are you going to speak down in uh, there if there's a memorial to King? And he said, if if they ask me. So I got there, and we went to, I went to the Lorraine Hotel, where he was killed, and there were a few journalists there, and I met Art Shea, the life photographer who had rented a car, and he said, let's go see what they're doing to the body. So we went to the police station and asked, where's, where's the body? And, and they said, Lewis Funeral Home. So we went there. And it was a typical instance. It was an old white mansion, and as the neighborhood had turned black, it turned into a funeral home. And the big, fancy front room was now the display room, and a flimsy partition separated it from the workroom, and we could hear them working on the body on the other side of the partition. Uh, We were the only uh, journalists there, and on the other side, we could hear them talking about, they had to, his jaw was shot away, so uh, they had to build a, a plaster jaw and powder it dark, 
And at the same time they were working on the dead body, the black radio station was on and his speeches were coming across, the live voice coming across. So that was a, a, a kind of moving moment. And the, uh, when the body was brought out around 5 a.m., there had been a long line outside of only black people who wanted to see the body. And they came in and they brought out the body and there was a scrim over the casket. And Art Shea said, I can't photograph through, through a scrim. You've got to take that off. He said, oh, we can't do that because our people are very demonstrative. They kiss, they, they hug, they uh, touch the face, and they'll rub off the powder off his jaw. And so he said, no, no, I need the picture. So they took the scrim off, but they, the funeral director stood there to intercept, if anything. And sure enough, one of the first women there uh, touched the face, and he escorted her away. Anyway, then we went and saw Coretta Scott King arrive, and he, Art went with her to the Lorraine, and I went to the Garbage Strikers Hall because they were holding a kind of rolling memorial there, and black, black preacher after black preacher got up, all these Baptists who have such tremendous oratory. And you can imagine the mood of the moment, how emotional everybody was and how they were responding in this very, very moving way. And the last one who spoke was James Bevel, small, natty, precise dictioned man. And he had been a strategist for the SCF, King's SCLC. He had come up with some of their most daring things and some of their crazy things, which got rejected, most of them, uh, including using children to march. Uh, that was Bevel's idea. Well, he got up. And at the end of a, uh, by the way, I went over to Bill Coffin and said, are you going to speak here? And he said, this is the big league. You know, I'm not going to fool with this. Uh, so Bevel got up, and of course, before it was call and response. Tell it, tell it, stay, uh, that kind of thing, responding. And he began in a way that doused all that, left them puzzled and confused. He said, there are a whole lot of false rumors going around. We're hearing that one of our leaders, our leader was killed. Uh, Dr. King was killed. That's a false rumor. You know, I didn't know what to make of that. And he said, uh, Dr. King was not our leader. And, you know, again, they didn't know what, what does this mean. Uh, and he developed that idea for some time. And finally he said, our leader walked out of a tomb. Our leader walked on water. Our leader healed the sick, cured the blind, and then rolled and rolled, and then they began to catch on what was coming, and this, this response starts building. And he said, Dr. King was not our leader. He was not one of the prophets of our leader. But we'll have more prophets. The prophets keep coming because our leader never dies, and just built and built, and the, the crowd went crazy. And I thought, I've never heard such a great speech. Well, the next day he gave uh, another speech, but it wasn't as good because the mood was not as heightened. And I went up to him afterward and I said, I, I'd like to interview you for Esquire magazine. And he said, I'm busy. I've, I've got to go to Atlanta. I've got to plan the funeral. Uh, and he walked off. Well, he went to Washington uh, after that. 
and uh, started his own little splinter from the SCLC. They, they, they realized he was stealing from them. Uh, and, uh, but somebody showed him the article that I wrote describing the speech in Esquire, and he called me up and said, really like that article, you know, would you come over and see me? I've got something I want to ask. And I said, you know, I'm in Baltimore, he's in Washington. I said, well, I'm awfully busy right now. I don't think I can. And he said, well, can I come see you? I said, sure. So he came over and put off, took off his cape and hugged me. You know, it's Brother Gary, Brother Natalie. Uh, how wonderful to see you, et cetera, et cetera. And he sat down and he started explaining what he wanted. He said, I'm starting a new movement, man, making a nation. And I'm going to march all the way from Washington to the UN, demanding that the UN recognize a black nation within the United States. And all the way along the way, I'm going to be make speeches, making speeches, and I want you to describe them. And uh, uh, he said, I, we'll, we'll come out with a book, and you can have 10% of the royalties. <laughs> so I said, no, I'm really quite busy. And he said, then he started working, and he, he was really good. He was a demagogue and persuasive. But he kept going and going, and finally he said, uh, well, I'll give you 50% of the royalties. <laughs> no, and finally he said, well, I'll give you 100% of the royalties. That'll be my contribution to the cause, but you've got to give your contribution to the cause. We need your talents. This is the great cause of our time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no. At that point... He got up, without a word, went over to the closet, took his cape out, and left. No, no brother Gary, no sister Natalie. Uh, so uh, we, I was interested in Bevel and, and followed him over the years. He got crazier and crazier. Uh, he joined the LaRouches. He ran for vice president for the LaRouche people. Uh, he fooled around with the uh, Birchers. And then, uh, toward the end of his life, several of his daughters came together and said, he molested us sexually when we were young, and we're afraid for our youngest sister. He had endless children, they, and they were all daughters uh, by seven or eight women. And so the Virginia police said, will you allow us to listen in if you call him up and accuse him. And they said yes. So they called him up and said, why did you rape me when I was whatever it was, 12, 13? And he said uh, things like, well, I was just trying to teach you the real meaning of sexuality and that kind of thing. So they had him on tape, and he was put on trial for incest and convicted in three hours, and was scheduled to go to prison uh, and pay a huge fine, but died while making the appeal. So on the one hand, I saw him on the mountaintop as this greatest orator I'd ever heard, and then I saw the, the dark underside of Jim Bevel. Uh, he was one of the interesting people that I wanted to write about in this book, but there are a whole bunch of others. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll say something about Baltimore. Uh, when we came to Baltimore, the, 
the Colts were at their greatest point. You know, it was a it was a team that the stars fell on. All kinds, you know, Big Daddy Lipscomb and John Mackey and Jim Mutchaller and all these wonderful Hall of Famers. And I had not been a Colts fan because when I was uh, watching football at Yale, I would go over to my future father-in-law's house and we'd watch games together, and he was a Giants fan. So I was rooting for the Giants against, it turns out, the Colts. And at the great 1958 wonderful game called the greatest football game in history, I was home in Michigan and driving in the car, and I heard the, uh, the game going on. And then it was down to uh, the very last minutes with three-point spread. The Colts were down. So I rushed into a bar to see the end. And that's when Unitas hit John Barry three times in a row, though the whole defense was keying on Barry. Uh, and got into field goal range and went into the first overtime in the history of pro football. And again, John drove the team down to win. So when we came to Baltimore, we became big Colts fans, myself and my wife and my children. And it turns out that uh, it was easy to talk to John Unitas because the Golden Arm restaurant was just two blocks down the street from us. And he was in there all the time. And uh, Artie <laughs> was at the other end with his liquor store. And I met Raymond Barry and, and got to talk to them. And then when they cooled off and Barry went to the Patriots and became, first of all, a receiver coach and then head coach and took them to the Super Bowl his first year as head coach, I went up to talk to him, to interview him for a piece in Esquire. And before I did that, I went to see Unitas. And I said, uh, you know, there's a, there are a kind of myths that you and Barry thought with one brain. You know, just you clicked. You always found him. He, he had this incredible record of hundreds and hundreds of passes caught and only one dropped in his whole career. There's never been a, a record like that. Uh, did you have some special tie with him? He said, no, I couldn't stand him. He said, he always wanted to tell me, oh, I've got this new pattern. You know, I want to, I'll, be, I'll be doing it. I'll be, he said, I didn't want to hear that stuff. I said, you get open and I'll find you. Uh, so I went up to see Barry and I said again, did you have some special relationship with John Unitas? And his wife Sally burst into laughter. <laughs> and said, no, they couldn't stand each other. Uh, now, it's true that at the outset, they would work afterward, passing and receiving. And Barry said, John's arm never got tired, but he got bored, <laughs> so he stopped that. And he said, uh, I couldn't stand what he said about me. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, what did he tell you when you talked to him? <laughs> and I said, he said... You were an amazing athlete because you began with every possible physical disadvantage and overcame it by sheer determination. And I said, like what? And he said, well, he was practically blind. Uh, he was slow. He had a bad back. He had one leg shorter than the other. 
And against all of those obstacles, he became this incredible athlete just by sheer guts. And I said, well, what was the matter with that? He said, everything. He said, for instance, the one that really bothered me is when he said I had one leg shorter than the other. He said, I had a pinched nerve one time in my back, and he was in the training room, and he saw the doctor lowering one leg and lowering the other leg to see if the one leg was being held back by the pinched nerve, and it was, but it was a temporary situation, and it didn't continue. Oh, he also said he only has nine fingers. Uh, so uh, I said, well, what was the matter with the, the leg story? And he said, I get letters from mothers and fathers who say, my son has one leg shorter than the other, and we know that you play football with that condition, so will you tell us how you do it? And he has to, I have to write to them and say, it's, it's not true. And I told John that was not true, and he keeps telling the story. He thinks it's a good story. So I said, well, what about the finger? And he said, yeah, he had a, his little finger was sprung out of condition by something, but he, he needed it back. Uh, and it, it kind of looked crazy, but it was perfectly usable. Uh, and... I said, well, what about the uh, back trouble? He said, no, that was the same as the short leg. And I said, well, what about uh, blind? And he said, he was one of the earliest athletes to use contact lenses. And typical of him, he went into it in a very serious way. And he had this little case of all contact lenses. And one was there for when you're running against, uh, you're running away from the sun and you turn into the sun, they were built in uh, uh, sunglasses. One was for night lights. One was for this, one was for that. But he would go over there with his little row of things and, and you know, I said, this guy must be blind. You know? He can't even find the right <laughs> contact lenses. Uh, but that was typical of, and I said, well, what about being slow? And he said, he gave me his 100-yard Thing. He said, I'm not as fast as some, but I have big feet uh, and big hands, and I can cut uh, very sharp, and so I get open all the time, uh, much more than people who are faster than I am. Uh, but that's the way he studied. His, his, fa his father was a football coach, and he grew up studying the game. He would go out before uh, a game and pace off the field, finding whether it's loose turf or uh, possible icing, uh, things like that. And he had a whole range of cleats, the way he had a range of uh, contact lenses. So according to the conditions of the game, he would change his cleats. Uh, it was all, he was the best equipped <laughs> player on the field. And here's United saying, oh, he, you know, he was just a mess, so he was a wreck, physical wreck. <laughs> so uh, I went to Irie Donovan and I said, uh, what do you think of uh, Unitas and Barry? He said, well, B Barry was a nut. <laughs> he, was, he was a religious nut. Uh, and, uh, you know, we couldn't uh, get along with him too well. I said, what do you think about Unitas? He said, oh, well, uh, he's the best, best there ever was. And he said he had such good control of the ball one time he was sacked, and the guy who sacked him rubbed his helmet into the ground. 
And he got up and said to the man who had let him through at the line, let him through again. And the guy said, oh, I, I'm sorry. I, uh, no, he said, let him through. So the guy came roaring after Unitas, and he popped the, the ball over the face mask straight into his nose and broke it. <laughs> uh, that, that was Unitas, too. Uh, so I said to Barry, you know, a lot of people now say that was, you know, it was the 1950s, for God's sake. Uh, the game has really changed. It's full of all kinds of expertise. Everybody's on headphones now giving uh, stuff off computers and, and uh, that kind of thing. And they say uh, Unitas could not be the player he was then. And Barry said, I never saw anybody who could size up a field the way John could. He said, if, if you gave him minimal protection, he'd find a, w- a way to win. He said, he was just a winner. And I thought of that when Unitas died. Frank DeFord, wonderful writer for Sports Illustrated, said uh, the same thing. You know, people say, oh, the game has changed. There are all kinds of different things going on now, and John would be uh, obsolete, a dinosaur. And he said, all I know is this. If we were playing one game for control of the universe against the Klingons, <laughs> I'd want Johnny Unitas in the huddle calling signals. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's one of my Baltimore stories. I've been an awful lot of interesting people in Baltimore. John Waters and Phil Berrigan and Tommy D'Alessandro, uh, Nancy Pelosi's brother. Uh, so I can talk about them or anyone else that you want, but I'll... Stop and see what you want. Yeah, well, not only that, but I knew them principally because of Jonah House, the one that they had here in Baltimore. I knew Dan Berrigan from uh, the time when he was uh, in the Catonsville Nine. And I knew the people that were recruited for the Catonsville Nine out at Woodstock. Phil did that. He went out and recruited some of the young Jesuits there who uh, went to Catonsville with them. But, you know, they have had a continuing demonstration against nuclear weapons, which they think there's no moral right to possess. And so I would go see them at Jonah House, and every year they would go over to Washington on the Feast of Holy Innocence when Herod killed the children and demonstrate in front of the model of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, And I covered a lot of communes during the 60s. They all disappeared. They were all very short-lived. Jonah House is the only one that's continued. Uh, It's the only one that has a kind of religious steadiness. They call it Jonah House because Jonah lived in the belly of the whale, and they say we live in the belly of the national security state of America, which is hatching bombs at a hundred and hundred and hundred rate. And what I liked about them is that they had a great solidarity with the working class. So although some people donated to them, they essentially supported themselves by painting houses. Uh, And so there are a number of nicely painted houses in Baltimore that were painted by jailbirds, uh, famous jailbirds who'd gone to prison time and time again. Phil and uh, Liz would alternate. One would be in prison and the other one would be out to raise their children, uh, who all grew up to be anti-war protesters, too. <laughs> so that's, that was one of the greatest 
things about Baltimore to me. When Phil died, his funeral was here in Baltimore, and uh, the Cusack family, John and Joan are the famous actors, but uh, Dick and Nancy, their parents, were anti-war people. And when I went to uh, Chicago, to Evanston, I went to church with them and got to know them, and Dan and Phil would visit them. Uh, so when Phil died, John Cusack was working on a film, but he lent the private plane that he uses to Dick and Nancy, and I went with them to come here for the funeral. And Dan gave a terrific memorial address uh, based on the Lazarus story. And on the way back, uh, Dick and Nancy told me about the various ways they had interacted with Dan and Phil. Uh, Phil was a classmate of Dick Cusack at Holy Cross. And so they were very close friends and remained very close friends all their life. Uh, and uh, Nancy told me that one time when Dan was on the run from the FBI, the FBI came knowing that they were close friends of both brothers, came to Evanston and questioned to see if they knew where Dan might be. And Annie, one of the uh, daughters, came in from school and the FBI man said, could I talk to your daughter? Nancy said, sure. And Annie said, what's, what's this about? And she said, well, uh, they think Father Dan did something wrong, so they want to know. She said, Father Dan could not do anything wrong. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, so that, that was an, a nice tie to Baltimore when I was in Evanston. Dick Cusack acted in movies and he was an advertising man who acted in movies and wrote movies and raised his children, all five of them, to be actors and actresses. Uh, and he was a wonderfully funny guy. They, they lived right on the lake with a park across from their building and every, their home. And every Thanksgiving, they would have a touch football game out there. And, and Dick, who was a good athlete, he played on the Dick Cusey's uh, uh, team at Holy Cross in basketball, but he had a bad back by then, so he couldn't play. He was the umpire. But he gave the best calls, you know, five yards for a stupid play, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, when he was, uh, right after we came to the funeral with Phil, he was diagnosed with cancer. It's interesting. He always played, he played judges in, in uh, movies. And so when we had the reenactment of the Passion at our church, he was always Pontius Pilate, the judge. And, but the, the woman who was the director got all the other people to memorize their parts, but he wouldn't. He just read it from the Bible. You know, he was the only professional up there. <laughs> He's the only one who didn't memorize his lines. But uh, when he was dying, John took him to Mayo and other places that he could uh, and stopped making movies for that time. So did Joni. And uh, he said to Dick, uh, you know, your, your, your time is pretty short now, Dad. Uh, is there anybody you'd like to see before you die? And he said, yeah, Ava Gardner. <laughs> and another time, the stuff he was taking for the cancer made him have massive diarrhea. And he came out from the bathroom one time saying, that was the biggest evacuation since Dunkirk. <laughs> 
And at his funeral in our church and on the campus at uh, Northwestern, John went up at the end and said, don't think I'm being irreverent, but this is what Dad asked. So the last song you'll hear in church here is this. And the pianist went up and started singing, Ain't Misbehavin'. <laughs> so that, it's amazing how nice many Baltimore ties continued. Yes. She wanted to know about the quality of the students that I have and how computers might have affected that. Yeah, I did teach 43 years, but I retired five years ago and stopped teaching. But I, I was always asked that about what kind of teachers, what kind of students I had. But it was, it was difficult to say because, especially at Northwestern, I taught in an honors program, and I taught a select seminar within that honors program, and I taught there for 25 years, so people knew pretty much what they were getting if they came to me, and they were self-selecting to uh, be receptive to the kinds of things I said. So I think I had an extraordinary group of students, but I can't swear that that was uh, a fair sample. I did recommend a number of students to various jobs. I had, when I was on NPR the other day, one of my ex-students who was there kind of historical fact checker there came on the line and said do you remember me I said sure I remember you I recommended you for a job with Bob Silvers at New York Review uh, and I've I come across them all the time when I was out speaking at the Getty Museum the woman who is their property lawyer which is a really complicated world now she went on to become a lawyer after I had taught her as an undergraduate I come across them all the time uh, you know you, you build up a backlog with having been at it so long. Uh, so my students were really quite extraordinary, but I don't know about the rest. Yes. Uh, first of all, I uh, Mr. Wills, I want to thank you for uh, coming to uh, Goucher College. When we organized the uh, 25th uh, anniversary of the Catonsville Nine, you were obviously one of the participants. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was that uh, uh, you had mentioned Liz McAllister. There were uh, several of us in court on Friday down in Alexandria, Virginia. Some of us got arrested on Hiroshima Day at the Pentagon, and others got arrested on, on August 9th, Nagasaki Day. And so we had our day in court on October 22nd. And I'm going to make a recommendation for your next book. Uh, Everyone is aware of the Pentagon and its war, war machine and it's causing havoc in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Not many people, though, are aware that in some of our opinions, uh, they are number one at destroying Mother Earth. And there's an excellent article called Greenwashing the Pentagon, June 14th, Common Dreams, by a professor in Rochester. The last thing I'm going to mention is you and I have a disagreement about the Venona transcripts. I heard you today on the radio and... Uh, in my opinion, the Venona transcripts do not convict Elger Hiss. Well, you're in a minority, and I salute you. Uh, but certainly the scholarly consensus is now formed. And it was clear anyway that Hiss was guilty. Uh, Lillian Hellman and Aya Stone and I had many, many arguments over that. But uh, I was convinced from the outset that he was guilty, and I still am. The question was, would I talk about the Catholic Church? Glad to. Do it all the time. 
there's a misconception about the Catholic Church, which Catholics and non-Catholics share, that the Pope is the boss, and what he says goes, and the rest of us just have to toe the line. Well, the Pope is a recent institution. You know, Peter was not a Pope. He was not a bishop. He was not even a priest. There weren't no priests in the New Testament. Uh, The Bishop of Rome didn't become a kind of honorary title of Pope until the 4th century. And in the 4th and 5th centuries, the great councils of the church, uh, which all took place in the east, Nicaea and Ephesus and the other church. Pope was never there, never had any say in the matter. So the great truths of the faith were declared without the pope. Uh, In the Middle Ages, the pope was frequently criticized by Catholics. Dante put the pope in hell, or Kanye and other painters put put him in hell. Cardinal Ratzinger, before he became the current pope, was asked, how come so many Catholics disagree with the pope? And, of course, they do, uh, overwhelmingly on some issues. And he said, well, it doesn't matter whether they disagree or not because the church is not a democracy. You don't vote on doctrine. Well, the opposite is true. The Council of Nicaea had hundreds of bishops all voting. Pope wasn't voting there, but they voted on the Trinity and on the Incarnation. And there was a minority vote and a majority vote, and the majority won. Uh, The church at the local level was democratic. People elected their own priests and bishops. And bishops could not leave the see, their see, once they were elected. Uh, In the Middle Ages, no bishop became pope. He couldn't. He couldn't leave his diocese. Abbots did, and curates did, and uh, relatives of Roman families did. Uh, so, nonetheless, over the years, it became clear to a lot of people in Europe that real authority had to be monarchical authority. That was true in the secular world and became progressively true in the religious world. Uh, and so the Pope became a king. He had armies, spies, torture chambers, vast territories to rule. Uh, and to protect by all kinds of uh, terrible instruments like interdicts, that is, if you crossed him, your territory did, uh, he denied the sacraments to all, your, all the members of your community. The Pope was not declared infallible until the 19th century in a very kind of crooked council, and that teaching has never been applied except once to what most people think is kind of irrelevant. Uh, the assumption of Mary's body. Uh, And yet everybody talks about the Pope as infallible as ever. Everything he said was infallible, or anything that he really cared about uh, was infallible. It's it's not. So people say to me, how can you be a Catholic when you're critical of the Pope? But they normally say it when you're critical of the Church. But I'm not critical of the Church. The Vatican Council said the Church is a people of God. It's not the rulers of the people of God. It's the people of God. Uh, So that's the church that I'm not critical of. 
And I, I am critical of popes because many of them are dopes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, a couple years ago when William F. Buckley died, um, I read somewhere that in the late 60s, he was appalled that the anti-war protesters were, and I think his words were, attacking not just the policies but the man. And what we see now, of course, is even worse with the Tea Partiers, um, that it's not only the paranoia, but just attacking Barack Obama as some kind of vile character. Uh, could you comment on just Buckley in general and what he might think of them? Yeah. Uh, he was not so much upset that people attacked Richard Nixon. Uh, he was upset that I attacked Henry Kissinger. But uh, he was upset that Dr. King and the civil rights movement in general criticized America for being racist and oppressive to the underclass. And he said that in the fight with communism, that's unpatriotic, to criticize your own country uh, in the face of the world when we're in this death struggle with communism. That's one of the two things that we differed on. The other was the Vietnam War. Uh, on the other hand, he was uh, a very responsible leader of the conservative movement. He kicked out anti-Semites of the movement. He kicked out John Birch Society. He kicked out Ayn Rand. Uh, he, he said that uh, we have to earn the respect of our fellow citizens. And we can't do that if we are towing the line with Liberty Lobby and John Birch Society and all of that. And now, there is no responsible conservative leader who will do that. You know, Barry Goldwater did it with the religious right. There were responsible leaders in the past, Taft and others, on the conservative side, the Republican side. But now, when as you say, the kind of vile stuff that went on during those town hall meetings in 2009 where Obama was not an American, not a, he was a Muslim, he was a Nazi, he was a socialist, he was a communist, he was the Antichrist, he was the angel of death, and no supposedly responsible Republicans criticized that. You know, several in Congress were asked, you know, do you really think he's an American? They say, well, I have an open mind. You know, and they say, I'll be willing to look at the birth certificate. That kind of stuff, you know, uh, pandering to these vile excesses. Uh, Buckley, at the end of his life, was a critic of the Iraq War. But no Republicans that I noticed paid any attention to that. It's too bad. He was uh, determined to make conservatism respectable, which it had not been up to that point, and he succeeded. But now I don't know who could make it respectable. Nobody's trying. Yes, sir. Could you uh, talk about uh, for God so loves Spiro Agnew that he made the vice president? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wrote a piece about him in Esquire before he, he was uh, elected. And uh, I said there that there were credible reports that he was corrupt. And, of course, the lawyers at Esquire said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, what a, 
And so I, I uh, backed it up. And I can remember uh, Bill Buckley said, uh, this, is off, this is off the deep end that Gary's calling him corrupt. And his sister Priscilla said, oh no, he's right. <laughs> so it took a while for the, for the world to catch on, but luckily it did. My opinion of Obama's performance so far, it's abysmal. Uh, I was one of nine historians invited to the White House in May uh, of 2009. We'd all written about presidents in the past, and he said, what advice can you give me? And a couple of us said, don't get into the quagmire of Afghanistan. And he said, uh, oh, I'm not naive. I know the problems. I'm going to guard against them and all of that nonsense. And in he went. Uh, he came in, you know, drinking his own Kool-Aid about, I'm going to overcome the div division between the, the red and blue states. Uh, I'm going to introduce a new era of comedy. And so he said, uh, I'm going to work with Republicans, so much so that I'm not even going to tell you what I want out of the health care plan. I'm just going to say, you work it out in Congress, and I'll be willing to accept what you want. And so Baucus and the Republicans played him for the fool, and he dithered and dallied, and, uh, and therefore the thing had dragged out all through that horrible summer of 2009 of all those. Uh, and he finally came up with a plan which is full of compromises which is going to cost more than the preceding situation and all of his enemies are going to say see what he should have done is say I know the only way to drive down costs is by the public option and I'm going to fight for it that's my position I'm not going to ask you to find me a position I'm going to have a position and fight for it if he had done that, he could have won. This way, he lost in all kinds of ways. The same with the finance world. He, uh, he brought back in Geithner and Summers and Bernanke and all those Wall Street guys and crumbled to them. You know, I just read, I think yesterday, that uh, the banks he gave bailouts to are pouring money now into the Republican uh, opponent, his Republican opponents. Uh, and the the CEOs are taking obscenely uh, rich incomes uh, with a disparity between the top 1% and 2% and the whole rest of the nation that's uh, unparalleled. Uh, so he's, he, he's a, a great ingratiator, but you don't win by being a great ingratiator. You win by being a fighter. Ask Teddy Roosevelt or FDR or, or even Nixon, uh, you know, they, or Reagan. You know, he went out and fought for his tax break and got it. Uh, so I think Obama is blowing a very rich opportunity that he had. Yes. Uh, yeah, thank you for coming here to Baltimore. I'm interested in your knowing what you think about the war in Afghanistan and why we can't seem to end it. It just goes on and on and on. Why there can't be peace there? Well, he backed himself into Afghanistan. He said during the campaign what well, was quite true, that 
Bush took his eye off the ball, he shouldn't have gone out of Afghanistan into Iraq, that that was a very focused effort in Afghanistan at first. It was to go after Osama bin Laden, and we were almost there, almost got him. It was a very limited mission. Uh, And so, having said we shouldn't have got out, he decided that's like saying we should get back in, which, which it isn't. The mission's totally different now. The focus has gone. Uh, Bin Laden's not even there, probably, uh, where we could have got him at Torbora. And, uh, you know, now we're going to fight country A to uh, affect country B, Pakistan. Uh, and we're going to uh, win the hearts and minds of the Afghanistans. They don't have a single heart. They don't have a single mind. It's a mess of tribal and other uh, collections of people that have no national unity. And we can't go in there and forge one by force of arms. And now that we have done the same thing we always do, we commit and then say, oh, we can't back away from the commitment. And he has now put in charge Petraeus, who will be impossible to fire and impossible to turn down when he asks for more troops and more time, which he's bound to do. So we're in there effectively forever. Oh, I would love to talk about Studs Terkel. Studs died at age 96, uh, just like, what, two years ago now? Uh, and he was the most engaging. Uh, you know, when I'm out on book tour, I ask my driver often, uh, who, who, what author did you drove who you liked? And they all say studs. <laughs> uh, he was, he appreciated people so much. Uh, and he, the thing about studs is that you went away a better person because you didn't want to disappoint him. He thought you were pretty terrific. And you figure, oh my God, I better be. Uh, he was uh, so open. You know, when he interviewed people, they would open up to him, and it's hard to tell sometimes from his books of interviews because he'll just give the skeleton of his question, and then he'll let the answer come. But I've listened to the tapes at the Chicago Historical Society, and a lot of his questioning, his discussion beforehand, for instance, one of them I can remember, he was his book working. He wanted all kinds of workers, including housewives or homemakers. And so he asked this woman, you know, what, what's your work like? And she said, oh, it's nothing. You know, I never amount, amounted to anything like my daughter, who has a nice career. And he said, doesn't it occur to you that you must have been a great mother to produce a daughter with a great career? And from then on, she started talking more seriously about the things that were rewarding in her life. Well, he did that over and over with people. And, you know, he loved to praise people and find ways to send them messages. The way I first heard of him, I was here in Baltimore, and I wrote a a piece that appeared in a Chicago paper that's now defunct. And he always rode the bus. He never learned to drive. Uh, And... He would always get on the bus and argue with people and talk to people. Uh, and I got this letter from him that said, I really liked his column. This is in the 70s. 
I liked it so much, I Xeroxed it at work and passed it out on the bus on the way home. <laughs> so, so when I found out I was going to Chicago, the first thing I did was go to his house. And Ida, who was just as great as he, opened the door and said, Oh, it's so good to see you, Gary. We went to jail together. <laughs> it, was a, it was an anti-war protest. Uh, she was really more active than he was because she could travel a little bit more than he did. She could also drive. Uh, but uh, when he got his, their FBI files, he was very jealous because hers was bigger. <laughs> uh, when he, uh, he, he acted in a couple of plays. He acted in a lot of plays when he was very young. He was on the radio and soap operas until he got blacklisted. But he also acted in a couple of Hollywood movies, including one, a Jane Fonda movie. And he played a cab driver. And he had just a few lines, and he delivered his lines. And the director said, now drive off. And he said, I can't. I don't know how to drive. <laughs> and so they had to bring in a guy to drive it off. And Studs always voted, <laughs> said, I'm the only bit player who had a double. <laughs> uh, but he was so uh, for one of the things is that when people went to his show whether they were opera singers or actors or authors or activists or folk singers he knew their world their worlds he had been in, the, in all of those worlds uh, he wanted to be a lawyer he wanted to be Clarence Darrow so he went to the University of Chicago Law School. Oh, I've got to, I love this story. I've got to break off and tell you that when he got his honorary degree from Northwestern, I was his faculty presenter. So we went back to get robed up before we went out. And by this time, he was very hard of hearing. He tended to hear what he expected to hear, not what was actually being said. Uh, so... He had been told that Richard Posner, the judge who wants all uh, legal decisions to be based on the market, uh, was somebody who was going to get the degree, and Studs was supposed to speak for all the honorees. And they said, well, you know, we have your disagreements with him. I hope that won't bother you, you know, when you speak for the group. And he said, no, that's okay. So we're being, we're, we're suiting up, and we see him suiting up, and he says, oh, isn't that Judge Posner? And, said, yeah, let's go over there. So he said, now that you're a judge, do you still teach at my alma mater, the University of Chicago? And he said, yes, I teach law there. He said, what was your uh, course last term? And he said, evidence. And Stud said, avarice? <laughs> anyway, Studs went to law school, and he graduated in the depths of the Depression and couldn't get a job, partly because of the Depression and partly, partly because he was a Jew, and there were not a lot of law firms that were hiring Jews at that point. So he had to scramble during the Depression. He became a radio disc jockey, a radio uh, uh, soap opera <laughs> uh, actor. Uh, he was on Ma Perkins, and he said... Uh, Ma Perkins, you had to follow the script exactly, word for word, because you couldn't impinge on the time for ads. 
You know, that was the most important thing. He said, but one time there was a snowstorm and the scripts didn't get through to us. So we had no script, we had to improvise. And we didn't have any experience of that. So in order to improvise, we played on the fact that there was a snowstorm. So we, we talked about getting caught in a snowstorm. And Ma Perkins' son said, wait a minute, Ma, I'll go ahead of you and break wind for you. <laughs> Anyway, the, the, uh, when Studs got finally so deaf that uh, it was very difficult, he couldn't do his radio show anymore. For a long time he could do it because the earphones would work. But it's amazing how many people wanted to come see him uh, when they knew they'd have to shout into his face and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, my daughter is an agent for a lot of people who wanted to see him, and and... I knew the people at the Lyric Opera. Uh, he, had, he had interviewed Lyric Opera. He had been a super uh, in the operas when he was young, a uh, spear carrier in the operas, and he loved opera. Uh, and he had interviewed all the Lyric stars who came through Chicago, Get, became very close friends of Tito Gobi and people like that. Uh, anyway, his, uh, when people would come through there, the publicist there would call me up and say, uh, Peter Sellers is here with Dr. Atomic. He wants to see studs. Can you take him over? And I'd say, yes. And my daughter would call and say, my, one of my clients is Most Deaf, the rap artist, and he wants to learn how to interview people, and he'd like to see studs. Will you take him over? And one of, another of her clients is the producer of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Neil Baer, and he's writing a book on storytelling as a healing art, and he wants to see studs, so I kind of ran a shuttle of, of people going to see studs in his 96th year. Uh, and his, he had all of his marbles right to the very end. It was astonishing, even though he was practically deaf and, of course, hard to uh, walk, uh, but so lively and so admired. Earlier on, when he was young, when we were both fairly young. I would walk down the street with him. I would go and he would, he did an interview show of all my books when they would come out. And he would take me to uh, Thompson Seagirt or other seafood places and we would have lunch. So we would start off to, to go there or Ricardo's, his old hangout. And we'd start walking down the street and people would just flock to him. We'd never get there. You know? We were always an hour late getting to lunch because everybody wanted to talk to studs and he wanted to talk to them. Uh, I've been in cabs with him where he'll get the whole life story of the cab driver before we finish the trip. One time, one time uh, he got a wrong number and it was, it was, it was the young son of the household and he started talking to the son, what, what are you studying, what do you like, you know? <laughs> and he, he got the whole story of the, of the son. Uh, another time, uh, Ida was sick, and so she didn't go up to the bedroom, she was on the couch, and he was reading to her. And he turned off the light, and a burglar came in through the window. Didn't know, didn't know he was there until he saw him all of a sudden. And, you know, he was shocked and, and Studs was shocked and, and the burglar said uh, give me your money and Studs said well 
I've only got two twenties. Uh, he said, okay, give me those. So he gave him the two twenties, and, and uh, he was about to go out the window again. And, and Seb said, wait a minute, you can go out the door. And, <laughs> and then as they were walking over the door, he said, you know, my, my wife is sick, and I don't drive, so I have to get a cab in the morning to get her some medicine. Uh, could I have a 20 back? And the guy gave it to him. <laughs> and Stud said, thank you. <laughs> and opened the door for him. The guy said, thank you. And walked, walked all out. <laughs> yeah. I said, he should have run our uh, Middle East negotiations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, could you speak a little about... Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter and mm-hmm. his attempts to uh, to bring peace to the Middle East? Well, uh, I was always pretty impressed by Carter. I met him. Uh, Clay Felker of New York Magazine called me up and said, you know, they've just shot George Wallace. Uh, and the effect of that on the rest of the campaign is unknown, would you call around to the south and find out what, what people are going to make of this? So I did. I started making phone calls. And I called Atlanta, and Jody Powell came on the line and said, the governor would love to talk to you. Why don't you just come right down here and, and talk to him? So I went down, and it turned out I was on a list. It was later turned out of people that they wanted, journalists that they wanted to make aware of Jimmy. Uh, and he said, well, the governor's going down to Tifton, the south, in the south of Georgia. A bunch of sheriffs there are upset at his racial progress, uh, racial policies. And so why don't you fly down there with him? So we went down in his little prop plane, and he went into a very hostile audience and didn't give them kind of liberal talking points. He, he said, you know, our mamas told us that we have to get along with each other and it doesn't do any good to tear at each other and all that kind of stuff. And, and he brought them around. They gave him a standing ovation when he went out of the room. And I thought, well, that's pretty impressive. And we came back on the plane and he said, I want to stop in planes and uh, see what's going on at home. And he, show, he showed me around the peanut farm and introduced me to Billy. And his mother was away then. So I wrote the piece saying... Uh, he wants to be president, and he could be a good one. I met him in uh, Washington a little after that, and he said, I liked your article except for one thing. He said, I said, what's that? And he said, uh, that I want to be president. I said, don't you? And he said, no. And later on when he said, I'll never lie to you, <laughs> I thought, well, there's... Anyway, I followed his campaign, and I found him uh, pretty impressive there, too. And I can remember somebody saying, why do you always bring up religion? And he said, I made a resolution at the beginning of this campaign never to bring up religion. You guys always ask me about it, and I have to answer. Otherwise, I wouldn't. And, you know, he's a Southern Baptist, and the Baptists have a very strong tradition until just recently of separation of church and state. Uh, and he adheres to that. There, he's the only president that didn't have prayer services in the White House, never invited Billy Graham there. He would go out and teach uh, Sunday school in, the, in a church, but on the campaign trail, he would never tell you where, where he was going to pray. You had to follow him if you wanted to. 
I can remember I went to one church, and there was a preacher who got up and was preaching from, I guess, the Gospel of Luke, that a man came to Jesus and said, uh, my brother and I are having a dispute over property, would you settle it? And the preacher said, can you imagine that? Taking the Lord and saying, settle our squabble over property. Uh, What an outrageous thing to ask. And Jody Powell passed a note down to three or four of the journalists who were sitting there and said, if Sam Donaldson was covering Jesus, he sure as hell get outrageous questions. <laughs> anyway, he be- Carter became president, and uh, in many ways a very good president, Camp David Accords, Panama Canal Treaties. Thomas Friedman has written very eloquently about the fact that he's the only president who saw the need for energy preservation, He put in solar panels, he gave tax breaks to wind, he brought down the the, uh, fuel consumption, Uh, he's preached limits, which Americans don't like to hear, and Reagan, of course, came in and said, oh, we can't have limits in America. Uh, On the Camp David Accords, uh, he was very, you know, his diaries have just been published, and I reviewed them in the New York Review of Books. they, they would not talk to each other at first, the two sides. And he would go and talk, and he would make the case for the other side. Uh, you know, he would go and say to Begin, you know, we can't have a, a unilateral uh, peace accord because all the other Arabs are going to say, oh, you're just getting yours and you're not taking care of us. And then he would go and say, you know, uh, he has to deal with his Knesset, uh, they're not going to give in easily on West Coast things. He, he played the, the devil's advocate for both sides back and forth. And he finally did get uh, pretty minimal, but nonetheless, a, a step along the way. And uh, he's followed up on that. He's been critical of both sides. Uh, he's been the best ex-president we've ever had on all kinds of grounds, monitoring elections, uh, carrying on work for uh, AIDS for, you know, he was, he was doing a lot of that AIDS work before Clinton got there, uh, for poverty around the world. But he was somebody who was focused on little things and never had any ability to express a grand vision. Uh, and that hurt him. Uh, and it, when you read the diaries, it's true, he was a really petty person in lots of ways. Uh, he, he's, you know, James Fallows famously wrote that he, he scheduled people onto the White House tennis courts so that they, <laughs> and he would, he would schedule the, the music playing throughout the mansion. Uh, all these little things. Uh, and in the diary, he says, he would keep the diary three and four times a day, dictating it. It wasn't enough to do it at night. He had to have an exact record of what he was doing. And what he was doing was often looking for arrowheads in planes and uh, tying flies for his next fishing expedition. And he says at the beginning, I had 24 volumes or something of, this, of these diaries, and I only put in 
the really interesting <laughs> things. And some of the interesting things are, are uh, disciplining Amy for using a bad word. You know, that's in his diaries, uh, the published diaries. When I was, I was at a, a Montana, Montana uh, Mike Mansfield uh, symposium with him, and in the daytime he spoke on a platform that I was on to the students. And one of the students said, uh, now you were in charge of enforcing the law of the United States. What do you think when your daughter got arrested for breaking the law? Uh, you know, she had demonstrated in front of the South African embassy against apartheid. And he said, I cannot tell you how proud I was of her. And if you young people don't voice your conscience now, when will you? Later on, you'll have other responsibilities, families, jobs. Uh, it'll be harder and harder. Now, you've never been freer to express yourself. Uh, so do it the way she did. They loved it. Then that night, everybody in Montana came there because there's nothing else to do there. So we were in a great big gymnasium, and he got up and droned on in his sing-song way about agape love. And the people, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff, and they just started streaming out of the exits. And I thought, Here's, here are the two Jimmy Carters, uh, forever at war with each other. Yes, sir. The question is, uh, we all have thousands of pieces of information, but how do we act on them to voice our conscience? Is that the point? Well, that's difficult to say. Uh, demonstrations have their use, as we found out in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, write, writing to Congress people uh, can have some effect. Uh, joining various kinds of activist groups. Uh, in my church, uh, the Voice of the Faithful is an activist group that's demanding accountability for what priests do with our money. Uh, that's useful. Uh, it all depends on, on things. I covered many anti-war demonstrations, and finally a, a guy whom I just met it was kind of an entrepreneur of demonstrations, said, oh, well, now you've got to come to a joint demonstration. I said, well, they don't really do anything, do they? He said, this one could be different. It's, it's a carefully drawn-up legal petition for redress of grievance under the Constitution. We're going to have people in Congress getting up to present our petition, and we're going to jam the doorway with 100 or so people and say, uh, until you... Uh, stop funding an illegal war, uh, we're not going to leave. And so there was a big debate the night before, what's the point, what's the point? You know, Joe Papp, the Shakespeare theater guy in New York, said, you know, we'll, we'll give the petition, and then when they tell us to leave, we'll leave. I've got something to do in New York. And, uh, and Dr. Spock said, well, nonviolent resistance is the best because that worked in, civil, in the civil rights demonstrations. So we all took part in that. Uh, I don't know that it had any effect. It was, it was better than most. I had earlier been tempted because my friend Murray Kempton went into, into a, an arrest situation, and I was tempted to follow him, but I didn't. Uh, and then we went back and blocked the Senate the same way. 
Uh, and those kinds of things sometimes have an effect on you. Uh, people become more, for instance, Pap said, oh, it doesn't make any, point, any difference. And I noticed that when we got to the arrest stage, he was there. And the next morning when we got out and went to the hotel where we had used as our staging area, we opened up the New York Times. We knew why he was trying to get back to New York. Governor Rockefeller was giving him an arts medal that day. <laughs> and his wife had to take it for him and say, he can't be here, he's in jail. Uh, well, uh, people say sometimes going to jail tells you th things about yourself. Uh, so well, even what seem to be feckless demonstrations can be useful. <laughs> One way it was useful to me, or to my friend, Carl Hess, I was in the cell with Carl Hess, Barry Goldwater's old speechwriter, and I was carrying my New Testament, which I often do, and uh, he said, uh, why the book? I said, well, it's my spiritual guide, but it's also the most influential book in Western culture. And he said, yeah, but why in Greek? And I said, well, that's what it was written in. Uh, and I said, learning Greek is the most intellectually economical exercise you can have, because if you're interested in history or philosophy or drama or oratory or poetry, you're going to be constant references back to the founder of all those genres. And they're all Greeks. Uh, if you read Dante, uh, uh, there's going to be all kinds of references back to Virgil. If you read uh, Milton, there'll be all kinds of references back to Homer. And it helps if you can go back to the original. If you're in politics, they're going to talk about Aristotle and constitutions and divided government. If you're in philosophy, Plato's around every corner in philosophy. So uh, when we went to the next demonstration, Carl came over and stepped over the scrunched up bodies and sat down beside me and said, I hope we get in the same cell tonight. And I said, why? And he said, because I've been studying Greek and I want to go over verb forms. So unfortunately, we got separated at the fingerprinting stage, so we were not in the same cell that night. But I, learned, I found out something very interesting about Barry Goldwater. Goldwater came up to the crowd in front of the Senate, and so they said, you know, your old speechwriter's in there. He said, no. He came stepping across the bodies, and Carl had gone from a libertarian when he was writing for Goldwater to an anarchist by this point, and he was bearded and booted and camouflaged, and Goldwater pulled him up and said, why don't you come see me? I haven't seen you in ages. And he said, well, I figured, you know, kindly piss off your staff now. And he said, well, piss on them. You're my friend. <laughs> so after that, not in the same cell, but at the Institute for Policy Studies where we both went a lot, I said, was he always like that? He said, oh, absolutely. He said, you know, in the 1964 campaign, the, he had voted against the Civil Rights Act of 64. And some right-wing crazies were trying to stir up racial trouble that summer saying, see, you can't give them enough. They're going to make trouble no matter what. And word of that got back to Goldwater. And he called in his top people, Cliff White, uh, Carl, and others, and said, now you guys all know me. And I want you to get word out there that if there's racial trouble this summer, I'm pulling out. 
I said, would he have done it? He said, in a shot. I never know him to go against his word. Well, I learned something out of that demonstration, I must say. I learned something about Barry Goldwater. I think that um, time has come for you to sign some books. Let's say thank you to Gary Wills for coming to, back to Baltimore. <laughs>